You've just entered the Disaster Tough podcast, the place for emergency managers, first responders, and humanitarians who want to get the job done. Stories, lessons, and tips are provided by field experts. I'm your host, John Scardina, owner of Doberman Emergency Management and former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters. Disaster Tough is our mantra. It combines experience, training, and analytics in order to be successful at any stage within the disaster life cycle. It means being a professional in emergency and disaster services. Doberman Emergency Management lives by this. If your organization needs to fill a gap, please contact us. We can help. Contact info is in the show notes. We also support other products and organizations that will increase your ability. For example, if you fight wildfires, hurricanes, a pandemic, any disaster in the field, at a hospital or command center, listen up. You're missing out if you do not use L3 Harris for your radio comms. They are secure, portable, mobile, and scalable, which is great news for us in the field. A truly disaster-tough radio system. Check out the XL family of radios by clicking on the show notes or simply go to L3Harris.com. When you think of situational awareness, you need to think of Futurity IT. They are disaster tough because they saw a gap and figure out how to close it by creating the Orion and Athena applications. Situational awareness is all about speed, coordination, and accuracy of information. Futurity IT's Orion app collects and provides preliminary damage assessments and integrates all incident action plan documents with WebEOC. The Athena app allows for planning, contact tracing, and customizable group coordination in every single phase of the disaster lifecycle. The best part? Futurity IT made both applications extremely intuitive. It's so easy to use. Click on the show notes today to schedule a free demo. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. I am so excited for this week. One year ago today, roughly today, we talked about business continuity. We talked about small businesses. And most importantly, we talked about restaurants and what they had to be doing in a response of a pandemic and all kinds of crazy disasters. And so you fast forward a year and I found the man that can answer a lot of our questions. His name is Matt Cohen. He leads off the grid and he's there to specifically help small restaurants get connected to big groups to be able to help people out in disasters, specifically those restaurants to be able to keep them going. So it's really exciting to have him on. Matt, welcome to the show. John, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So I was checking you guys out. Over 900, in fact, 973,000 meals that you were able to help deliver last year alone, which is pretty wild to think about. I know you're based out of there in San Francisco. You, you, you have food trucks and you guys saw this opportunity response. And now you're touching the emergency management world. Tell us more about off the grid and kind of that, that idea that you guys that had and you know, why did you get into the emergency management space? Yeah. So, um, John, the, uh, our story started in the emergency management space in 2017. Uh, we, uh, really deeply believe in the idea of local food communities and how we can support local food communities. And uh, the best way to explain what we do for people who aren't familiar with our company is that what we do is we connect uh, local food businesses, typically mobile businesses, so food trucks, caterers, pop-ups, uh, cottage food businesses, uh, with opportunities to sell in the public, and we provide the spaces to be able to do that. Awesome. So 
it always seemed like there was this uh, connection to emergency response. But, you know, quite honestly, uh, Off the Grid has been around since 2010. Quite honestly, like how you draw that connection between where we fit in and the emergency response space mm. took us a little bit of time to figure out. Um, yeah. And so uh, it kind of went from there. Mm-hmm. Well, 2017 was definitely the year to jump in in emergencies because like, um, I think that was the first year we had multiple, actually that's not true, not multiple, but four, four type one events in response. We had hurricanes, wildfires, a lot of groundbreaking stuff. Unfortunately, we don't want ever want to be groundbreaking emergency services, but uh, I mean, this is, this is the fundamental conundrum, right? Like mm-hmm. we want to be able to help. We want to be able to be prepared. Uh, but fundamentally, we also don't want these things to happen, right? Mm. Uh, and so that's that's also that mental shift uh, it has been something that you know our, our team has had to kind of work through as well. Absolutely. So, like the way I like to approach it is, you know, especially for those who are thinking about getting into the field or people who are really passionate about emergency services, it's like it's not doomsday prepping. Like great preparedness is making your life easier in response. It, t- it takes a crisis and it prevents it from becoming a disaster. And what you're doing right now is you're saying, hey, for all those small restaurants, for all those restaurants out there who just need to get out there and help people, that's taking a crisis that could impact their business and allowing them to keep operating it, hence preventing a disaster for those people, right? So it's yep. it's not so much like if or how, but it's about sustainability and be able to return to normal as fast as humanly possible, right? Well, actually, so what we saw in 2017, uh, because we were at that point only involved in more of a local response in Sonoma and Napa counties. Mm. And what we saw was like this amazing uh, energy from the culinary community about wanting to jump in and support these farms and these communities Mm. that they work with all the time, right? Yeah. And so, uh, but what also became increasingly clear was like those efforts, which were uh, relatively chaotic, those efforts were also relatively unsustainable. Mm. Uh, and so they could jump in for a, f- a few days. They could jump in for five days a week. They could get something donated from suppliers. But ultimately, that began to run out over a period of the first seven days of the event. And that's really where we began to see like, oh, there is this next step about what happens in terms of recovery as people move towards stabilizing and their interest in comfort, but long-term care as well. Yeah, there's like definitely the psychological side of it as well. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But uh, in terms of the organization, it, it sounds like, you know, a, a lot of support without a lot of organization. And what Off the Grid is doing is providing that organization piece to it, right? You're saying, okay, like, how do we, so um, in my perspective, there's, so we always talk about response and recovery, but there is actually like this middle ground of, we know we're technically not in response anymore because we're not doing life-saving, but we're definitely not in recovery yet. And so like there is this, there just needs to be, maybe we can invent it today on the show, but there needs to be like this, uh, you know, it's not A and B, it's A, A, B, and C, and we got to figure out what B is, right? Yep. Uh, yep. M- maybe B stands for business. I don't know, business continuity. <laughs> but, um, no, but like, you know, it is, there is this middle space that happens where, you know, initially it's like people, people just need food, right? Yes. But then 
they go past food and their entire life is disrupted and is going to be disrupted for some time. Mm. And food can provide that connection to comfort in a way that really is empowering both to them, but also, you know, it's, uh, I think a lot of people forget the restaurants that are in those communities are also impacted as well. Uh, all yeah. of their normal customers, their routines, their habits are disrupted and they might have come back for months or years. Uh, and so, you know, how to make that connection between the two is that B space uh, that I think is really valuable and important. So, okay, not going to lie. La- I literally just got back from a family trip uh, to Yosemite. And if anybody's been into Yosemite National Park, there is a lot of driving, like an insane amount. Of, you like They say, it's oh, it's like three or four hours to the park, but then you don't realize that it's another like two hours to get in the park. But anyway, mm-hmm. so it's like so much driving yesterday. And at, at the end of it, we're in the middle of nowhere and it's around dinner time. My, my two-year-old is super hungry. I'm with my parents. It's a crazy situation and I'm exhausted. And we found this restaurant and go in there and I had like, it, it felt like it was the best steak I ever had. I think it's probably because I was tired, but it like rejuvenated me. Like I felt like, like, oh, I can drive another two hours tonight. It's totally fine. And it, it, it like changed all of our moods and we were happier and so it comes back to like what, so in fact, Matt and I talked previously about the psychological impact of disaster and what food can do for that and uh, overcoming like effects of PTSD. And uh, so I just like want our listeners to hear, especially those emergency managers from your perspective, why should they focus on the culinary aspect of not just MREs? Because that's where we always go to, like there's an emotional side of emergency management, especially helping out with survivors. Like, what is your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, John, I think you bring up a really important point that uh, essentially not all calories are equal, right? Um, and, and so, you know, I think there is a extreme sensitivity to wanting to provide safe food uh, to those who are in need uh, and obviously be able to meet the needs from a kind of scale place. of an uncertain amount of people that you need to serve. So like typically the the, kind of path to that is uh, buying pretty commodity type food uh, and uh, serving it in a way that doesn't necessarily rely on refrigeration, uh, doesn't necessarily rely on kind of food safety needs uh, and mitigating food safety risk. Mm. Um, And so uh, I think that the point that what OTG is trying to do when we are operating in the space is make it just as easy to work with a local restaurant or a local business to be able to provide the meals to the people in need, but actually be able to provide uh, fresh local food that can then have this double bottom line impact to that restaurant in that community, farms in the community when we're doing deliveries and we're facilitating deliveries using local couriers to allow people to get back on their feet. Mm. Uh, And so it's really about that sense of like being able to provide delicious food that has all of these kind of trickle down uh, additional impacts that are good for communities. Man, you're talking, there's so many layers of like good in that, which I don't know if that's a food pun or not. It's like seven layers (laughs) of good. But, uh, you know, you're thinking about, let's like talk about the restaurant owner. You've yeah. just been impacted by a wildfire. You just impacted, you know, your home's impacted and you got this business that technically can still operate, but you don't have any ways to get the supply chain there. And all of a sudden they have supply chain. Talk about a stress relief. 
and now they get to do what they love or you know get to at least get to do what they they are used to doing which is a big part of the psychological response uh you know recovery of a disaster just returning to normal and so you have that whole side of it and then they're serving the customer and seeing the customer feel relief and the customer being relieved you know and so like from you know again that analogy of abc all those points down the line you know it's it i i think helping out restaurants is a huge deal right now if you if you take it from a restaurant perspective the first time that most restaurants right now are thinking about how they can get involved in emergency response is in the middle of an emergency <laughs> uh, yeah. so they're they're like we want to get involved we want to be able to help but they're also like how am I going to continue paying my people? Yes. Where's my food going to get paid? And so uh, I think what we're trying to do, and, and this is the kind of ultimate space where OTG has landed, is by onboarding them ahead of time, by giving them food handling standards, by pre-negotiating all of the pricing that will fit with our contracts at the state level or with non uh, NGOs of various, of various places, mm -hmm. uh, all of a sudden what we enable them and empower them to be able to do is activate, right? Mm -hmm. Which is exactly what they want to do and what they're most passionate about. Okay. So uh, let me ask some questions then, because a guy, I, as a guy who's been out to plenty of disasters myself all over the country, uh, it's kind of works like this, at least my perspective. I mean, tell me how OTG, I like how I keep calling it OTG. That's awesome. Um, yeah like the OG now. Um, so the, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints brings the food. Typically the, uh, Salvation Army or the Baptist church, Southern Baptist church cooks the food, Salvation Army slash Red Cross gives the food to survivor. Right. And so you have all these commodities and that's kind of the, the standing operating procedure that happened after Katrina, because that was a crapshoot between everybody. Like literally food trucks were, or not food trucks, but trucks with food were showing up and they were just, nobody would use it because they didn't have those, those in place. And so how do you insert yourself into that equation? So uh, there's, there's a few aspects to this. And I think we can talk about a COVID time and a non COVID time. Right. Okay. Uh, and so uh, let's just say uh, during the COVID time, when everybody was sheltered and placed in individual hotels, the idea of being able to meet those food service needs required delivery to a great variety of different spaces. And the logistics of that are actually really complicated to be able to do, yes. even at large hotel properties. Mm. And so what we what OTG is best at is the logistics of being able to connect those restaurants, be able to have uh, some sense of control about cuisine type, around around dietary restrictions, uh, labeling, and be able to actually safely transport it to hotel properties. Now, that's during COVID, right? Yeah. When we get out of COVID and we get to more of a congregant feeding experience, what we're also able to do is use the aggregate amount of restaurants to scale up seamlessly that's so awesome. that the restaurants can continue to maintain their supply chains and also at the same time, deliver the meals either in bulk or packaged uh, to be able to be used over an extended period of time. So this can fit into the logistics infrastructure of a Salvation Army or Red Cross doing a pickup and actually delivering those meals to the site. Uh, 
mm. or we can help to facilitate that too. Yeah. So we're, we're, what we want to do is ultimately just be the best partner that we can to those large organizations that are involved. Yeah, in fact, we've had Patrick McGinn on here from the Salvation Army, and he talked about the logistics of trying to deliver food to, uh, I think it was 120 hotels in the wildfires last year. And mm -hmm. that had never been done before because they always do congregate shelters. And all of a sudden he was looking at it and the state basically said, hey, can you do this? And he said, I'll figure it out. And, um, you know, he didn't say this on the show because he's a good guy, but he was run ragged. I'm a, I'm a personal friend of his and he's a great friend of the show. And I know he was just exhausted. So like the idea of even releasing that burden a bit of just saying like using local communities to, to know how to do this. There, it, there does come a question in my mind though, of like personal identifiable information. Okay. So we have, we know their survivors, not even the hotels knew their survivors in there. How do you overcome the issue of, okay, we want to work with these communities to get food there, but we can't really let them know who's it for. How, how's that work out? Have you thought about that at all? Yeah. So, um, what we actually, we do it in a couple of different ways. Um, so, uh, with our logistics platform, what we're able to do is anonymize the information down to the bare minimum necessary in order to meet the delivery need. Mm. So, in a congregate site, it's less necessary. It's just the amount of people, the yeah. amount of a specific thing that you need. But when you're talking about a hotel environment or something like that, where names are necessary, but no other information needs to be there, mm. we actually uh, are, are able to deliver printed labels or labels that can be printed by the restaurants so that it can make it to the right place and where it needs to go. Mm. If there's more sensitivity than that, uh, we can actually put someone on the ground that can actually facilitate the delivery and limit the information sharing to the absolute minimum amount of people necessary. That's awesome. um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that what you don't want to do is put people's personal information at risk, obviously, at a time when they're in crisis. Yeah. And so, you know, we've we've gone through and audited our processes and systems to absolutely eliminate uh, the or I guess. Uh, uh, minimize the amount of sharing of personal data at every step of the way. Got it. So it does. Let, let's just walk, walk me through the process then. Let's say I am, I don't know, an Indian food restaurant, one of my favorite restaurants, right? Just right down the, down the street. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm hearing that, you know, through the grapevine, that was another food pun. Uh, <laughs> I'm very proud of myself for that. Uh, so if I'm hearing that, Hey, uh, down a couple of miles down the road, there's survivors from uh, a disaster. I want to help or, hey, we're at, every year we're at risk for a wildfire and I know there are going to be survivors down the road. I want to be able to help as a restaurant. How does that process happen from completion? How do they actually get food into the hands of the survivor if they just want to help? Um, so I think I think for us it actually starts ahead of time, and I think here's an here's a like call to action for the emergency managers that are out there listening to this, which is if you know of restaurants that have done a great job working with you in the past, we love that connection. Please go to offthegrid.com. Please let them know about our website because we're onboarding them right now. So what we're doing when we work with a restaurant is we're collecting their insurance information, their health certificate making sure that they have safe food handling practices. Uh, and we send them an onboarding process that basically is a, a kind of a get started kit and an onboarding kit to our program. Mm. 
it, it allows them to understand how to print the necessary menus. It allows them to understand the sizing and the portioning that would be appropriate so that they can activate in the event that something happens in their region uh, within, within a, a few counties away, whatever they're willing to do, that they can activate and jump in and, and, uh, and help people. So really for us, the most important thing, just like that restaurant not wanting to uh, get started with all the paperwork in the middle of an emergency, for us, we want to get ahead too, and we're in the process of onboarding people right now. Okay, so your process includes both the supply chain route and actually working directly with the survivor, like, for example, a congregate shelter, right? Yeah. So... If I'm a restaurant owner, or more importantly, if I'm an emergency manager and I'm saying, okay, obviously I need to start thinking about food as uh, an X factor in business continuity, and uh, I'm a local emergency manager at a county, so I'm like, oh, right, I should be including businesses. We always include businesses uh, for critical infrastructure and for all kinds of different stuff. But what you're saying is we need to include those restaurants. And so if they are pairing with off the grid or pairing with, you know, that kind of a mentality from an emergency management perspective, I guess like my, my thoughts or my question would lead towards how, how does the emergency manager connect those dots between the two and how, how does that cost share even happen? Are they getting yep. paid from the County? Uh, you know, what is, what is the cost analysis there? Yeah, I think the conversation can start in a variety of different ways, but what off the grid, really what we found the value in is being the one point of contact to be able to then distribute the meal opportunities amongst a group of restaurants. Mm. So, and if you happen to be in a particularly rural area to go out and find other restaurants that maybe aren't in your immediate area, but are in the adjacent areas Mm. to be able to give you resiliency. So, uh, the, the funding, if it's a county, typically that's getting into longer stage recovery. So maybe there's FEMA funding associated with that. Uh, and we're happy to talk about where the funding source for that could be. Uh, or it could be coming, in our case, from the state of California uh, or from charitable organizations. So basically, you're trying to get uh, an MOU in place that if the restaurant's involved, Sorry, a memorandum of understanding that if restaurants involved and they do, they provide services, then the check comes from the government to to resupply. You're not going to survivors, for example, and saying, "Hey, pay us twelve ninety nine for your meal," right? Uh, that yes, that's exactly right. So uh, I think I think our 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 kind of first principles kind of place are uh, that. Uh, emergency response for the restaurant should strengthen it rather than rather than harm it mm. and that it should be as easy and simple and delicious for someone who's impacted by an emergency to be able to get a meal uh, and that's obviously free of charge so what we're trying to do is bridge the funding source with the logistics and the need in order to make it super easy for an emergency manager to be able to say this is exactly what I need but not necessarily worry about how many restaurants it'll take to get to that need. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to switch gears here for a second because obviously it's always about the survivor, but now I'm thinking about that stake too much. So that's a problem. But uh, in terms of emergency management, you have, I've been out disasters where 
like the first couple of weeks out there, I ate one meal a day and I was working like 18 hours a day. And I am definitely not as important as Survivor, obviously. However, that support system that is required to sustain survivors, um, I do feel for those. You know, I feel for the the, the wildland firefighters, especially, who they, they're at an incident command base for months fighting these fires. They don't do anything with survivors. Is Does Off the Grid do anything with the, that? Or is there MOUs that you guys are looking to, to work directly with, you know, the responders? Like, how does that work? So typically what we've done with uh, especially uh, kind of more remote uh, 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 supportive firefighters mm. has all been through kind of charitable like uh, pathways rather than MOUs. Mm -hmm. Of course, the exact same thing could work uh, with an MOU, but uh, typically like what's great about uh, OTG is uh, in those remote places, we can actually send a food truck to those remote places. Mm. Uh, and it can, it can be a supplement to what is normally there, or it can be something where we're stationing people and we're cycling food trucks through, uh, even bringing them in from out of state. So yeah. I think there's a lot of flexibility there, but typically, uh, yeah, we'll bring the food to wherever the need is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I just spent all last week with Urban Search and Rescue at a, a, the, the um, State Urban Search and Rescue 2021 Training Certification that just happened and uh, really incredible. I mean, true heroes, people who are going into pancaked buildings. That's not a pun. That's actually what they call it. Um, where, you know, we were laying on glass and rubble on my chest and the ceiling was on my back and we were helping out uh, survivors inside buildings for an entire week. And, you know, I, I would want to give every single resource I could to them so that they could do their job effectively. And, it does take a toll and anything that you can do to like to release that toll on a responder so they can keep helping people. I mean, that's a big deal, right? Um, off the grid aside, I mean, off, off the grid sounds like an amazing concept, but what we're actually talking about is food to increase resiliency, right? Um, actually what I should say is food to create more uh, tough people, right? So exactly. yeah, really cool concept. Well yeah. And I, I think, you know, again, the I, I, from from our perspective, I think uh, maybe a lot of that hurdle has been around uh, foodborne illness concern. Right. Um, and and so I think that there are ways to overcome that uh, that make a lot of sense and allow for breaking out of the environment of just the MRE. Right. Um, or yeah. or or a very limited food supply. So. Um, you know, I think I think there are interesting, creative ways to overcome that, uh, and we're excited to just be having that conversation with people and be educating them about the different ways that that can happen. Okay, that's a real concern. Like, USAR teams bring their own food with them because of that. They're so afraid of getting sick. So, yep. if you're going to talk directly to them, what would you say? I, I mean, bottom line, uh, it's not. There's not one single solution for any given problem, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so if you're out in a remote place and there's a small group of people, the needs associated with feeding that small group is very different than a much larger group where you might bring in more infrastructure. And so what I would say is it's a conversation where it's about what are what's the best thing to meet the need. And then we have a whole array of tools to be able to support that, whether it's 
bringing in local food businesses, providing them with a truck themselves, bringing in local trucks, uh, or being able to support by actually providing the assembly offsite and bringing it there and making sure it's transported transported safely. So there's like a whole bunch of ways to be able to make it happen, uh, but it's really about the right process that aligns with health health code standards as well. Yeah, the um, I mean the the pandemic really highlighted that right of like all not all disasters are also created equal not all disasters are regional disasters you know and um you know that that fema i'm really curious to see the numbers after all this i hope it's not as bad as i think it is but you know fema has the stat that 40 percent of uh, all all small businesses do not recover after a disaster and 25 percent that do come back fail within a year and we obviously know that restaurants are a big part of that I mean, it, it, what it, on average, you probably know this better than I do, but it takes about a year before even a, a small business, small restaurant can become profitable, right? So that first year is the, the scary year. Yep. So if you're so the, I mean, the, the, the stat that is being thrown around right now in the Bay Area, and I think, I think it's probably relevant for the rest of uh, the country as well, is that, uh, 50% of restaurants were put at financial risk of going out of business over the course of the, of the pandemic. And it'll take two years or more to recover financially, even if they get back up to the level of, of business that they were doing pre-pandemic. And so in this environment, there is, it is really, uh, it has been totally destabilizing to uh, like these are major employers and communities, uh, and these are small businesses that are, are kind of the fabric of what make an individual place feel special. So it, it sounds like you are intimately involved with these businesses and you're, you're able to understand their pain points. I got to ask, and this is kind of outside the realm, so you, you can pass the buck on this one if you want to, but... Um, all those stories that came out last year about the um, protection, per, personal protection payment program or something, the, the protection payment program, and yep. like Ruth, Chris, get you yep. know, if so, if, if you don't really follow the story, everybody for listening in, like the what happened was, you know, you had to be a small business and it had to be a, under a certain amount of money and it had all these things, but then these huge restaurant chains were claiming franchises and they were getting the money. And uh, it like ate up a lot of the first round of, of money because they were able to figure out how to go around it. Do you agree with that? Because you're like, okay, they are franchises and they are people. Or were you like, man, that could have really been much more effective if it went to other, or other organizations. What was your take on that? I mean, I think the, 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 the kind of the outrage, as I understand it, around PPP in particular was about well-capitalized companies. So Ruth Chris, publicly traded company, right? So right. well-capitalized company in the marketplace going and uh, kind of extracting value from the program and putting other people's ability to take advantage of the program at risk, right? Right. Um, and so uh, the, the, I think that what I can say is for restaurants in general, the PPP program has been uh, moderately effective uh, because what the PPP program does in order to uh, get to forgiveness for uh, restaurants is it requires them to maintain payroll. But if you don't have customers coming in the door, what, where, what is the payroll going toward? Right. Mm. Um, and so 
Uh, I think, but in the most recent legislation that went through, there's the Restaurant Recovery Act, which if your uh, your gross receipts are, I believe, 30% lower than the previous year, there, there's an opportunity for a grant, and it's targeted really mainly at small mm. restaurants uh, okay. and small businesses. So uh, I think there, there's a second piece of, of, uh, of, of the package that's really relevant, but I think w- where really the PPP kind of impact was really around, oh, well, I have employees, I can keep them on, but where can they go? By the way, what a great fit for this topic about allowing them to be able to continue working uh, and be able to provide these kinds of services. So that's what we've done. I think a year, the number that you used at the opening of the show, I think now we're, we're in excess of 1.3 million meals oh, wow. uh, that we provide in San Francisco, Oakland, uh, and San Jose uh, by operating these programs and supporting these restaurants. That's incredible. I mean, that's really incredible. Um, yeah, that's interesting take on the, the, the PVP and the fact that, uh, like, it sounds like there's been improvements to that. And interesting about them. Like, I, I like hearing it from your perspective because everybody, I mean, you read these articles and you're like, okay, like, if you're going to talk about disaster response, I'm your guy. But, like, hearing about this is, like, really fascinating to think about. Um, you talked earlier about preparing for the future, and we're all, obviously all about preparing for the future, right? So I'm I'm going to look at it from like that preparing the business continuity plan. I'm a county emergency manager, or even uh, you know I work for a, a for example, if I worked for a federal agency that required a, a business continuity plan, and we're working with the community around us, what would be, I guess, your top three things that they should they should do now to in order to be able to support those local businesses? I think the, the first thing is really assessing scale of response uh, and, and, and what exactly is, whether, you know, tabletop exercise, whatever, but like what exactly is the emergency uh, in order for us, uh, in, if we were going to have a conversation, in order for us to assess what is the order of magnitude of how many restaurants are needed to support a particular place. Um, wow. So, an example, an example of this is we're preparing for different amounts of response in 39 counties all over the uh, state of California. Um, not all of those 39 counties have the same demand. And so right. what we're trying to do is meet a kind of uh, the kind of threshold that'll kind of be able to respond to different orders of magnitude of response. Um, mm. Then there's a whole kind of secondary uh, kind of series of interesting conversations to be had about uh, what I would love and my dream would be that there are predefined spaces where in the event of a certain level of an emergency that the local community can activate and turn on. Uh, And then the final one is about uh, the kind of reality of the economics of the response uh, and some understanding of an MOU so that action can be taken and those restaurants can be activated. Yeah. That sounds, uh, you know, kind of on par with what we do with, uh, t- typing it out, type one, type two, type three. Uh, I would like to see something like that. If I was going to do a business continuity plan today and, you know, Doberman does these plans for different organizations and that's fine, but I would really like to see it also the incident based, because if you look at a hurricane or a tornado, your survivors are your survivors and the people that you're working with are directly impacted. 
But if you're in something like an active shooter, it's going to be the families. And mm-hmm. your survivor base is actually, you've expanded now to people who are hyper aware that the, the world could be dangerous. Something happened to their kid or something could have happened to their kid. And providing that for, you know, again, going back to that Patrick McGinn statement of emotional and spiritual care, man, yep. sometimes eating food is pretty spiritual, right? So, um, you know, that's it's an interesting thought process well, of incident type I, as well. No, I think that, you know, to that, to that point, uh, I think the other thing about using local businesses is those businesses are reflective of com- local community values mm. in a way that, you know, a, a kind of larger entity that's just kind of preparing food as a, a, as a, as just a product, uh, maybe isn't considering, right? So, you know, the kind of universe of diversity and equity and inclusion and, and having a, a, like a lens into that in emergency response is, is I think another area where this is a really cool opportunity to be able to serve those needs of, of, of a, of a community that might be uh, lower, uh, Ill, uh, lower income, uh, or coming from a particular demographic perspective. Okay. That, um, my mind is just spinning with ideas right now. T- tell me if you think this is unrealistic. So we had two kids in the last two years, uh, we're ballers in that way, but, um, we had a really great community who like friends and family who like dropped off food or would make meals for us. And then you know, like depending on like the level of surgery, whether it's giving birth or something else, it would be amazing if in as part of your either your insurance or as part of uh, an NGO outreach that said, hey, if you're going to give birth, we're going to deliver one meal a day for the next six weeks. You know, even like super localized like that. I mean, could you just like you could start pairing this off to any level of disruption in your normal life now having a kid is a wonderful disruption but it is a disruption right mom's not sleeping dad's trying to help out like the whole deal and so um you know there's there's lots of different ways that you could pair this whether it's you're an emergency manager or you're actually just trying to look it up for your family you know i'm just you know who who orders food six weeks out right nobody does that but if you did that from good food i mean it might change some stuff too so i don't know no i i think Actually, um, uh, there's an interesting connection here to data uh, because uh, it, in the past, all of the th- the steps that you described about you know the the kind of acknowledgement that there's been an event in someone's life and an action being taken that provides variety and and uh, and something that will feel comforting and delicious that'll arrive directly to someone. All of those kind of tools uh, existed uh, in separate places, and they were hard to to integrate together. Mm. But the world that we're living in right now, and the tools that we think about building on in terms of emergency response, are all about integrating those things seamlessly together, mm. so that you can use really powerful data around being able to identify the people who are have a particular need be able to reach them through uh, social media tools or through a variety of different kinds of mechanisms that uh, you know where they'll be and qualify them 
and then seamlessly uh, basically onboard them into a process that begins giving them comfort in a variety of different ways. Um, that's actually literally what we did for our grocery program in San Jose, uh, where we actually took the tools to amplify what was a traditional, uh, you know, community groups and, uh, and a, a local government communications plan uh, and be able to qualify people and onboard them onto the, into the program that wouldn't have otherwise known about it. Yeah, fascinating. Okay, so if that's all true and, and you're moving and you're looking at all this data, what is the data telling you about the future? What what do you think is most important to focus on? And really for the people who are listening to this show, we're the guys writing the plans. We're the guys and girls writing the plan. And so what do they need to do? What is what is the next steps? So I, I like I, I I think one of the pain points that we've heard from a lot of uh, of of people who are responsible for managing uh, disaster response and emergency response is uh, that Sometimes the data comes to them slowly, and oftentimes the data isn't necessarily actionable about the experience of what the people receiving care feel about that experience. Um, And what we are really interested in being able to do is, number one, provide as real-time data as we can about what's actually happening as Everyone knows situations change quickly on the ground and being adaptable is important, but also being able to connect that to a survivor response that they can actually feel empowered to be able to have some control, but also some feedback around, yeah, this was, this was good. Thank you for this. That can, that message can go to the restaurant, but that message can also go to the emergency response manager so that they are understanding about what's actually happening on the ground to the people they're trying to support. That's where we're trying to go in the future. That's cool. That's cool. Um, okay. I got to ask, cause I'm looking at the time here. We're starting to run out of time. So what, let's say, what's your final pitch? If you were going to talk to our community, I deal with guys. Look like, like the reality is we're, we're already burned out. Everybody's burned out. Actually, I'm doing great, but cause I just went to Yosemite. Right. But oh, yeah, I, I mean, you're burned out because of your two kids. Uh, no, I don't get burned I, out because my kids. I love my kids. <laughs> like, they re-energize me. But like, seriously, like what, what, you know, what's your pitch to us? You know, off the grid is an amazing concept and you're reminding all of us of business continuity and restaurants can help out. You know, not just the owners, which we care a lot about, but we also care about the survivors, obviously. So what's your pitch? So uh, I think I think bottom line, uh, if the idea of allowing local restaurants to be able to meet your needs is attractive to you, but it feels overwhelming to think about how to even engage with that, I'd love to have a conversation with you, right? Uh, because what we understand is, uh, there's a, a, you can be uncompromising about meeting the demand uh, when you're put in the situation to be responding to it. And you can be uncompromising around delivering safe food to people. Um, but we are aiming to be the solution for how they can take what seems like a complicated thing and make it simple. Um, so that's the pitch. Uh, and uh, I think anecdotally, what we know is that 
by each successive uh, event that we're involved in, that we're building the trust of the community. And uh, hopefully uh, that trust will precede us wherever we go. It's a great pitch. Uh, 1.3 million meals is a pretty good uh, uh, metric, speaking of data. So congratulations to you there. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I'm a huge, huge fan of emotional and spiritual care in emergencies. And I've seen it in real time with the 2011 disaster, which I think I've told uh, people about on the show before with the tsunami. And researchers going in there, adding a schedule, trying to get people to return back to normal and providing better than uh, MRE, providing great nutrients, great meals to be able to trick their body and their mind that everything's okay and help those people respond uh, or recover faster. So I, I love the mission of off the grid. I think what you're doing is great things. And uh, I really think my listeners should, should give you guys a, uh, you know, check you out. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna put off the grid, uh, your website in our show notes. You're not a sponsor. We just, we should probably tell people that. We just thought it was a, a great idea and um, I love the idea when I heard about it. So um, yeah, thanks again, Matt, for coming on the show. John, thanks for the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so if you like this episode, if if it made you think about business continuity in a whole new way, which it should have because it's a pretty amazing concept, you got to give us that five-star rating. So lame, but we ask every time, give us a five-star rating, subscribe to our podcast, come back next week. If you have a question for Matt, you can do it a couple ways. We're going to put, like I said, we're going to put his um, off-the-grid company in our show notes so you can reach out to them directly. You can ask us on social media. Oh my gosh, we get so many emails. Thank you for the emails. But I keep on saying this. Ask on social media so because other people have the similar question and Matt can see it there too. And if you want to work with Doberman Emergency Management, you have a question about business continuity plans, you need a continuity plan yourself, you can always reach out to us at info at dobermanemg.com and we'll see you next week.